0: We had credible information that the brokers on the Commodities Exchange were colluding with each other to steal money from their clients and to falsely hike up the price of crude oil.
1: You know you're there to investigate crime. You've got a secret life. Y'all, you deserve professional hair color that makes you look your gorgeous best delivered right to your door. You can take your hair coloring at home to the next level with Madison Reed, and it starts at just $22. Women have had two options for coloring their hair for decades, that at-home color you got out of a box that's outdated, or going to the time and expense of a traditional salon. Many clients of Madison Reed comment on how their new hair color has improved their lives, Women love their gorgeous, shiny, multidimensional, healthy-looking hair. This is game-changing color you can do at home. And you'll look like you just came out of the salon. Madison Reed Color is unique because it's crafted by master colorists who blend nuances of light, dark, cool, and warm tones, and they create over 55 gorgeous multidimensional shades. Find your perfect shade at madison-reed.com. Best case, worst case. Listeners get ten percent off plus free shipping on their first color kit with code Best Case. That's code Best Case.
0: Hello and welcome to Best Case, Worst Case. This is your host Jim Clementi, former New York City prosecutor, retired FBI profiler, and writer producer on CBS's Criminal Minds. And with me today is my wonderful co-host.
1: Hi, everybody. It's Francie Hakes, former state and federal prosecutor. How are you, Jim?
0: Pretty good, but I'm sure our listeners will notice a little gruffness, at least in my voice. Um, This is flu season, and uh, even though we're in sunny Los Angeles, California, boy, uh, I guess I spent some time on the East Coast, and I flew back, and I came back with a bug. And it's been kind of kicking my butt for weeks now. So trying my best to be able to talk without coughing too much.
1: Well, let's hope so, Jim, and where you have to pause, I feel certain I can fill in, because as our listeners know, I can talk.
0: Well, don't they? Anyway, Francie, today I thought I would tell you about one of my worst cases.
1: Well, I'm excited to hear about it, Jim, because it isn't all that often that I get to cross-examine, I mean, discuss with you one of your own cases. Mm. And so I'm eager to hear about it. And to be honest, it's really interesting to hear what you categorize as a worst case because you've had some really bad cases in your career.
0: I've had one or two, that's for sure.
1: So Um, let's talk about this case and what kind of case it is.
0: So, Francis, I'm going to tell you about my worst case. But this is going to be a multi-part case. This case went on for more than three years in the investigative stage and five years after that. So, there is a long-term, very detailed aspect to this case. And so, I'm gonna have to break it up from time to time to time. So, when we have time, we can go into it more deeply later on, Um, but so we'll talk about the beginning of the undercover operation this time. And then we'll go into some of the things that happened during the case, some of the crazy things that happened, some of the horrible things that happened, and then we'll talk about what the results were.
1: All right. Well, let's get started with part one then.
0: All right. Well, this is a major case undercover investigation on Wall Street.
1: So were you the undercover person?
0: I was an undercover agent, yes. Yes.
1: Well, let's talk about when in your career this happened. You've had a very long career, and you were an FBI agent, you were a profiler. When in your career did this case happen?
0: It started in 1989, about two years into my FBI career.
1: So you were a young agent?
0: Absolutely.
1: Excellent. And where were you located when you were undercover?
0: When I came out of the FBI Academy, I was immediately signed to the New York office, The New York Division of the FBI is the largest division in the country, um, and it has a tremendous number of agents, as well as offices, as well as crimes that it investigates.
1: Well, I'm curious, Jim. I always thought that I remembered that the FBI rarely assigns agents, especially right out of the academy, to where they're from. So how did that happen, that you got assigned to New York, considering you were from New York?
0: Because there were so many vacancies in the office. They couldn't fill any vacancies in the office. So they finally said, okay, if you're from New York and you want to go back to New York, we'll let you go to New York.
1: So you must have been thrilled.
0: Yeah, except that they penalized you for that. Because what they did was they said, anybody who doesn't live in New York, who will agree to go to New York, will pay you $25,000. But anybody who lives in New York, who's had to put up with the the cost of living there for their whole lives, they're not going to get paid any more money. So it was really kind of ratty.
1: Well, that does sound ratty, but it also sounds like the government. Mm. Typical disincentive system.
0: Right. So anyway, one day I was doing my work at my desk and a memo crossed my desk that said they were looking for undercover agents for a secret operation.
1: And you were intrigued, no doubt.
0: Especially because the requirements were, one, you were good thinking on your feet,
1: You've been a prosecutor, Two, so yes.
0: you you're good at math. Yuck. And three, you don't look anything like an FBI agent. And I said, I'm perfect.
1: <laughs> and yeah. you are perfect.
0: Well, yeah. Well, can we, can we loop that maybe 100,000 <laughs> well, times? It
1: is recorded.
0: Francie just said, I'm perfect. Wow. Wow. That's a major breakthrough. <laughs> so, I put in my papers to be considered for this. And they bought me in and they said... We're going to interview you, and then we're going to give you a test. Honestly. See,
1: a test. I would have walked out immediately. <laughs> I've had so many tests, bar exams. Uh, I'm done. There's mm-hmm. no way I would ever take another test.
0: Yeah, one day I'm going to have to tell you about my experience with the bar exam. But anyway, I did pass it on the first time. <laughs> um, but anyway, so they interviewed me, and they seemed to like me, and they gave me the test. And the test was 10 questions, mathematics. And they said, we're going to time you. I'm doing this test. And I was like, okay. And they said, tell us when you get to number 10. And, you know, I've taken enough tests to know that sometimes they put the harder ones at the end. So I thought I'm going to zip through all these questions. I'm going to look at them. And then I'm going to start answering them.
1: Right. The Makes top. sense.
0: So I looked through and I saw number 10 was the hardest. And it was something like the square root of 9 million something or other. And so I started calculating that in my head while I answered one through nine. And as I'm writing the answer to number 10, they said, wait, what are you doing? And I said, I'm writing number 10. They said, we told you to tell us when you got to number 10. And I said, I thought it was when I was finished with number 10. They said, you can't do number 10. And I said, yes, I can. (laughs) And, And anyway, they said it was a joke. You're not supposed to do it. You can't answer that. And I said, sure you can watch. And I answered it. And so they looked at me like I'm crazy. And then they told me, wait a minute, you finished all the other ones? And I said, yes. And they said, you did it in 29 seconds. And I said, I'm sorry. That's as fast as I could do it. And plus, you were bothering me. And she said, no, that's a minute faster than anybody else finished it. And nobody else did number 10. And I was like, okay, so I'm hired? And they were like, I guess. (laughs) So I did get hired.
1: So I guess what this means is you had math aptitude. And you were taking a job that you didn't know what it was.
0: Right. I mean, the thing about it was they kept it totally secret about what the actual undercover operation was. The only thing I did know, because the case title was MC-106. MC-106. Yeah. Major case 106. And the FBI, that means the entire history of the FBI, which was probably around... 85 years at that point or something, there was only 106 major cases. This was the 106th of them. So very rarely it happens that there's a major case. I mean, to this day, there's there's still less than 200 major cases. So this was a major case that I was going to be part of, which I was excited about because, of course, you want to do big things to make a big impact.
1: Of course, you're fresh out, practically fresh out of the academy. And just for our listeners, the FBI handles thousands, uh, opens thousands of cases every year.
0: Tens of thousands, So
1: actually, 106 you know. means it's big.
0: It's in the top 1% of the cases that the FBI does. So anyway, um, we went through a few other exercises and interviews and so forth. But then I was introduced to five other agents that were also going to be part of this undercover operation. So um, I remember one of the things was, you know, these other agents were introducing me by their names. And I said, don't tell me your name. And they are like, what? You know, they thought I was stupid, but I said, look, we're going to be undercover for years together. I don't want to know you by your real name. I only want to know you by your undercover name. This way I'll never mess up. And they thought I was stupid. But to me, operational security is incredibly important. And it will come back to haunt some of these other people later. But
1: So at this point, <clears throat> do you know what it is you're going to be investigating?
0: Well, they eventually told us that we were going to be working on Wall Street. We were going to be working on the floor of the New York Mercantile Exchange, the NYMEX. And this is where they trade commodities like gold and silver and crude oil and heating oil and unleaded gasoline
1: is it, mm. it kind of like that scene from Ferris Bueller's Day Off when they're in the Chicago exchange and they're up in a booth and they're making all those weird hand symbols and, and there's craziness on the floor where there's hundreds of people shouting?
0: Yeah, only it's thousands of people shouting and I'm on the floor with them. Wow. So here's the thing. They told us that what they were going to do is train us for six months and then put us on the floor and... That didn't quite work out the way they planned it. The first thing, I had to do my own backstopping. Now, backstopping is when you get a new identity for your undercover persona.
1: Well, wait, why did you have to do your own backstopping?
0: Well, that's the thing. The FBI wanted to do it, but they had me come into, going to the University of Tennessee, uh, some craziness like that, and... I was like, uh, you're insane. There's no way I'm going to pull that off. First of all, I have a New York accent. Clearly. Everybody in New York is going to know I have a New York accent. They're going to know that I speak like I'm from the Bronx. And they're going to know that I was never in friggin' Tennessee. Okay? So that's ridiculous. So I started my own, backing it up to birth. My birth certificate, my all my schooling, all my work history, everything I made up for, you know, the entirety of my life. But because we were going to actually go on the floor of the exchange, and the hope was that one or two of us would become actual brokers, we had to have all of our records had to be actually what we actually took in school. You can't make it up because we're going into a fiduciary position. We will be trading crude oil futures for the United States of America.
1: Wait, so... You know, what you see on TV and in the movies for something like this, for undercover, is somebody sits at their computer, invents a backstory for the undercover agent, and then there's one or two people in the company that you're going to work for that kind of know who you are and so that they can insert you in. But what you're saying, that's not what was going to happen here.
0: What they decided was no six months of training. We're just going to flood applications onto the floor for clerks. And get as many people in as clerks as possible. And then as soon as possible, try to get them to take the test and become brokers.
1: I'm going to guess that taking the test and becoming a broker is not as easy as it sounds.
0: It's not easy. No. And the situation was such. We'll get to that in a little bit if you can hold off on that question. But when we found out that we weren't going to be trained at all, they basically gave us books and said, you know, Train yourself.
1: <laughs> train yourself. Yeah. Train now, yourself to understand commodities trading.
0: Right. And so the thing was, I was a chemistry major in college. I took a lot of physics and chemistry. I, was, I had a minor in philosophy, took a lot of those courses. I went to law school, took a lot of criminal law courses and stuff. Never in my entire educational career did I take a single business course. Oh, dear. So I was not exactly happy about the fact that they weren't going to train us. They just threw us in, and it was a matter of budget. They did a lot of stupid things. Stupid things. Like, they said, okay, well, you guys, there's six of you, so what we're going to do is have you two and two share apartments. So we're going to be roommates with somebody who's another FBI agent who I'm not even supposed to know in the real world.
1: Which doesn't make any sense and isn't good for operational security at all. And
0: it's so stupid, but it saved money. So, what I had to do, because I wasn't going to be that stupid, was every morning I got up and I got on a train, a subway train, and I went uptown and I got on a bus from the Port Authority up by the George Washington Bridge and I took it downtown. And then I complained when I got to work about my long commute from upstate New York.
1: And, of course, your long commute was a fact. It just wasn't quite what you were saying. No.
0: And one of the other undercover agents, who I was roommating with, would come in every day and say that his current roommate was just a horrible person and he wants to get rid of him. And so we set up this scenario where he's complaining about his roommate. I'm saying I hate my commute. Eventually... We had them at the exchange, the brokers and the other clerks, say, hey, why don't you just move in with him? And I'm like, I don't know, that guy's pretty weird. And eventually I did move in with him, and that's with air quotes. Right. And then I didn't have to do all that two hours of commuting that I didn't need to cover our asses because the FBI was so cheap.
1: Okay, so we skipped ahead. Obviously, you became a clerk. Yes. But what I still don't know is what exactly were you supposed to do as a clerk? What criminal activity were you there to investigate?
0: Well, we had credible information that the brokers on the Commodities Exchange were colluding with each other to steal money from their clients and to falsely hike up the price of crude oil and to make money off of people that were trading outside the floor as opposed to them who were on the floor. So, There's stuff called front-running and bucketing and moving the market, and manipulating the market, all those kinds of things. So these are all things that I had to learn. And what I did was I went in and I put in my application to be a clerk. And I did an interview. And I told them that I was ready for a change in my job, that I had worked in chemistry. So I had my exact same education history. My work history was edited because... I couldn't tell them that I was a lawyer or prosecutor or an FBI agent. So I edited that part out and said I worked in chemistry for a company and and so I did this interview and they also kind of tested my math skills, right? And uh, I got the job.
1: I think this brings up a great point about the dedication of people like you, Jim, and your fellow FBI agents and other undercover officers all around the country and really all around the world When it comes to something complicated, whether it's investigating the mob or a drug scheme or a human trafficking organization or a large major financial fraud case like you were doing, these agents and investigators, in order to understand the fraud or the crime, have to understand the underlying processes. And so you have to make yourself an expert just to understand how those people involved in the scheme are committing inga- a crime committing a crime exactly right.
0: so yeah and so this was something i had to learn an entire area of business and education that i never had any experience with so i did that um, in my free time <laughs> uh, and so the day came when i mean it took six months for me to backstop for example i rented apartments in my undercover name I wrote letters to myself there. So the mailman would receive letters and be delivering letters and get used to things being delivered there and packages. And I went and got credit cards at different stores and so on and so forth. So people could actually see that there was an actual person behind that name.
1: Can we know your undercover name? Why? I don't know, because I'm curious. And I guarantee you people listening are saying, yes, Francie, that's the question I had.
0: Well, it was James Galenti.
1: James Galenti. Yep. Interesting. That way, if you heard your name shouted on the street, you're likely to react to it.
0: Right. Exactly. Because it's Clever. close to my real name. Clever. And by the way, whenever any FBI agent goes into deep cover, they have to go through a lot of psychological screening to make sure they can hold up to the pressure because it is the most stressful thing you could ever do in the world. There's no question about it. And I'll explain a little bit more about that later. But when I did get my evaluation results in i was meeting with dr steve band who's the head of the safeguard program and he told me that i came back as a rebel personality like i like to do things my own way
1: that is shocking
0: and i thought i was getting fired and he said no (laughs) you're gonna be a great undercover operator, so.
1: Well, cause you have to have a certain level of independence, course. ability to think for yourself, because there are gonna be times when you can't make contact with the FBI, at least not easily. Right. So let's talk about that a little bit. When you're undercover, how do you make contact with your actual employer at the FBI? How do well, you report in?
0: Well, there's actually a position called the contact agent. And that's an FBI agent who is working on the case whose only job is to maintain contact with you and liaise between you and the FBI so that there's a buffer between you and the FBI. You can't just walk into the FBI office when your supervisor wants to see you or something. So this agent, my contact agent was Andy Binghamin, and he was a great guy. So in order for me, if I had to go into the FBI office, I would have to walk from my undercover apartment to a undisclosed location. It was a garage and uh, people who never have been to New York City wouldn't know, may not know this, but there's so little space in New York City for parking that some of the parking garages are literally buildings that you drive onto an elevator and it drops you down and then they drive your car around to whatever parking space. So there's no ramp system, it's just an elevator. And so I would go to this building and I would get on this elevator and I would go down to like the triple basement floor and I would climb into a van that was waiting for me there with my contact agent with no windows and I would lay down in the back and I would be driven out and then I'd be driven into the basement of the FBI building and then I would go up the elevator and go to a floor that that had no other FBI agents on it and that's where i would meet with the fbi
1: well for everyone who's wondered where jim clementi gets all his stories for tv and film i think we now understand because that is a great image that i will carry with me jim Mm. you having to lay down in the back of a van just to be brought into work
0: So here's the thing, the first day on the floor of the exchange, all I can do is describe it as chaos and hell, and I walk in, and there's literally 5,000 people working on this floor, and I find the little area of booths where we're working, where the company I just got hired by is working, and I find my boss, who's an Irish guy, who favorite word was four letters and started with f (laughs) um, and he used it every other word at high volume and his face would get red and he was kind of a real jerk he's an alcoholic too by the way so Um, a
1: low pressure laid back atmosphere on your first day
0: absolutely so i walk in there they're starting to tell me neil this guy would tell me how to do what we were doing you know and I was a little bit of an outsider, you know, these people at all, there was a lot of nepotism on the floor of the exchange. Everybody gets their job because they know somebody or they're related to somebody. That's it. And so f- to have somebody from the outside, particularly this company hired people because they started a brand new trading company on the floor and they didn't go to everybody on the floor to get their employees. They went outside.
1: And so people didn't like us. Well, so... You were there to investigate a possible massive fraud scheme. Was that a general fraud scheme of any company on the floor, or were you in particular sent in to that company to investigate that? Our information that
0: one? was that every single company there was doing dirty, illegal trades, taking advantage of their customers. Period. Everybody. It was pervasive, and our experience when we when we worked there for three years bore that out.
1: Well, that was what I was going to ask you, what was the original, was there an original time frame given? I mean, I would imagine there would have to be some time where you literally establish yourself in the company, there's the whole getting your broker license, but also figuring out how everything works before you can start understanding whether there's a fraud scheme. What was the normal, what was your commitment? There's no
0: normal, nobody had ever done this before. This is the first time in the history of the FBI that they put an undercover agent in a fiduciary position in a deep cover situation, and certainly the first time they've ever put let an FBI agent in a deep cover situation in their own hometown. Wow. So th- I was under a tremendous amount of stress. I could not go out in New York City. I went from work to to my apartment, which literally was across the street in Battery Park City because work was at the World Trade Center. and. A couple of times I would go out for beers and stuff with the guys from the floor. You know, when I became a broker, to be social, but I would have to really limit that, be really careful. A couple of times I've I've run into people that I knew, and it was almost a well, that disaster. Could have been a
1: disaster, but also your family, Jim. So now what you're saying, this is behind police line stuff is you spent three years necessarily isolating yourself socially so from your friends but also presumably from your family because you couldn't take a risk that someone from your undercover job would recognize you out somewhere else
0: right exactly it was terrible it was stress upon stress upon stress and so and while i while i was there that first day you know maybe half an hour after i get there The opening bell rings and oh my god the roar of literally thousands of men in their respective pits because each one has a pit roaring at the top of their lungs trying to make trades at the beginning of the day it literally made every hair of my body stand up it made my skin crawl and the first thing I thought what the hell did I just do? Oh, my God, this was the biggest mistake in my life. And it was, it was horrifying, terrifying. And so, like the crude oil pit where I was working, it was, it was a big, um, let's say, octagonal set of stairs going down in the middle. So, so it's
1: really a pit.
0: It is a pit. And at the center of the pit is a net. And they, th- they write their trades on a card and they th- toss it into the net in the beginning. Now, this, this octagonal set of stairways probably had 10 levels of stairways going down, and literally, there was 200 people in this one little pit. Claustrophobia
1: and there's, central. There's,
0: you know, this is crude oil. There's also heating oil, and there's unleaded gasoline, and gold, and silver, and all sorts of pits, dozens of pits all over this floor, massive floor, 5,000 people, all screaming at the same time. It's insane. But what would happen shortly thereafter is the Gulf War would break out.
1: Oh, yes, I recall that.
0: And crude oil becomes the most crucial commodity in the world when the Gulf War breaks out.
1: And that's what you're there to trade.
0: And I am there to trade it. And the pit goes from 200 men to 320 men. Wow. Because it was so volatile and they were making so much money that all these other brokers wanted to come in. And so they all started to trade. So we were smushed together, a pit that was made for maybe 200 people, had 320 guys in it. It was insane.
1: That sounds incredibly stressful, not just physically, but of course, mentally, because you're talking about something that you have no background in and you know is not your career. You know you're there to investigate crime. You've you've got a secret life. So you've got that stress going on in your head as well as all this craziness. Well, talking about
0: stress, you're right. I have a secret life. But every undercover agent has to triple-think everything. So you have how you, as a human being, would react to something. Then you have your undercover persona and how that person would react to something. And then you also have to do an investigation. You have to find out what who's committing crimes, how they're committing crimes, get evidence of those crimes. So you're constantly just... Thinking things over and over and over and over again before you say a certain uh, a specific word.
1: So when it comes to operational security in a situation like that, Jim, especially in your hometown of New York, so many different complications going on. How did you conduct your investigation? I mean, literally, did you write things down? Did you have a secret journal? Did you have hiding spots? I mean, how did it really work just in case you had to have someone come over? I mean, obviously, there are all sorts of factors at play.
0: Yeah, there was a million things going on. So we had to wear recording devices every day. And when the Gulf War broke out, they put in two levels of metal detectors that everybody had to go through.
1: Um, uh uh-oh.
0: Yeah. So I had to get... My recording device, which was substantial in size and encased in metal, threw metal detectors every day at least twice. When
1: how did you do it? Secret. It's a secret. It is. Sorry, folks. That's, behind, that's too far behind police yeah. lines, apparently.
0: So after six months of working as a clerk, I told my boss, you know, the one that cursed a lot, that I wanted to take the test and become a broker. And after he stopped laughing, he asked me who the heck I thought I was. And I said, what do you mean? I said, I'm ready. And he goes, you see that guy? It took him eight years as a clerk to become a broker. That guy, 10 years. That guy, 12 years. Who the hell do you think you are that you think you could do it after six months? And I said, well, I've been studying and I think I'm ready. And he basically said, all right, F me, F you. Go ahead, take the test. So I took the test. Along with one of the other brokers, me and Barry. Okay, so me and Barry took the test. And we got the two highest marks of the whole class.
1: Well, see, your boss didn't realize that you were the question number 10 guy who solved the impossible square root of whatever it was.
0: Right. And so we did really well on the test. But that's the written test. So we had to take the Series 7, Series 3, Series 63, to become commodities brokers. And so what we didn't realize is that there's also a practical. And the practical was after the bell closed for the day, about 30 brokers would stay behind. And then all the new brokers who had taken the test, the written test and passed, would be thrown into the pit and they would turn on the board and they would make you do trades. They would give you orders and see if you could execute the trades.
1: And I'm sure they give you easy trades, right?
0: Well, no, I mean, not really. But remember what my boss said, F me, F you? I I knew he was going to try to screw me. And so let me tell you what the board looks like. So it's a big electronic board, maybe 40 feet wide and 20 feet tall. And it has 18, the next 18 months electronically across the top. And it has the trades Under each of those columns, the last 20 trades that have traded for that month crude oil. So crude oil and commodities are traded by the month. So August crude oil would be in a column. August, let's say 1990 crude oil would be 12 months later in the next column. So you'll see, you'll be able to see, this is how companies project what their expenses are for the next 18 months if they have to buy and sell crude oil. It's made on this market. That price is set.
1: That's why it's called futures.
0: There you go. And so when we did this test, they lit up the crude oil board and they put up all these trades and we had to keep track of 20 trades for each month for the next 18 months.
1: So it's easy.
0: Lots of numbers. And they keep scrolling down. As each trade happens, it goes up on the board, right? But you have to keep track of it. You have to see, because some orders are triggered by... A price hitting. So if crude sales at $3 a barrel, then you have to sell or you have to buy. And so you have to be on top of it. There are buy orders, there are sell orders, there are hold orders, there are all sorts of things. Oh,
1: Jim, it gives me a headache just to think of it.
0: Well, you really want a headache. And what do you want to hear about is a butterfly trade.
1: Oh, the butterfly trade. Okay.
0: Butterfly trade is when you trade crude oil against its distillates. So you distill crude oil into heating oil and unleaded gasoline. And it costs, let's say, about $2.50 to distill crude oil into one of those two things. So you always know that those prices of unleaded gasoline and heating oil would be at least $2.50 higher than crude oil. And so if the distance between those prices goes up or down, it's like crude oil is the body of the butterfly, and the wings are made up of heating oil or unleaded gasoline. So if the wings go up above the body more than 250, well, then that's, that means that there's a bigger price gap between what it would cost to buy the crude and distill it. And if they go down below 250, one of them you want to sell, one of them you want to buy, you have to keep track of all three boards. And so I figured that's how my boss was going to screw me. In the real world, there was one man who did all the butterfly trades. He was some savant who used to be a taxi driver who really sees numbers. And he would stand between all three pits, and he'd do all the butterfly trades for everybody who wanted to do it. And they paid him a little piece of the pie for doing that. And so, all of a sudden, I see the other two boards light up, unleaded and heating oil. And I'm like, that... Some Might have wanted to use a four-letter word yourself. That guy is going to give me a butterfly trade. Wow. And sure enough, so I started memorizing what was happening on both of those other boards as well. While I'm doing my trading on crude oil, I was looking at the other boards too. And sure enough, he hands me a butterfly trade.
1: This is just amazing to me. I mean, some kid from the Bronx who... Goes to the FBI, volunteers for an undercover operation. You don't know what it is yet. And here you are on the Mercantile Exchange as a test, having to engage in what sounds to me like the most complicated thing in the history of the world.
0: Yeah, there you go. So I fortunately had been paying attention to the two boards on the side. So I was able to execute the trade and I saw my boss's face just turn blood red and they had to give me a license. So I actually was the first undercover FBI agent to become a broker on the New York Mercantile Exchange.
1: Wow. So so now you're a broker. You're now official. So you got these metal devices through the metal detectors because you had to record all the conversations. What else?
0: I also devised a method of using the order pads that we used for taking orders and and filling orders as a broker. There was a hard card, say the size of an index card, and there's a sheet of sort of self-carbon paper on top. So you write on the order on this flimsy sheet, you tear that off and give it to your clerk, and he makes a record of it, and you take the hard card and you toss it into the net in the middle of the pit. So what I figured was you don't, it's, it's carbon paper. So if you don't write on the outside, but if you, I turned one, I would have a stack of these right in my hand all the time as a broker. I turned one upside down and I would write upside down and backwards with my fingernail and document who the symbol number for each of the brokers. Every broker had a little tag on their shirt. Or their jacket, their trader jacket, and it would have a three or four letter code that would be their name. So the guy next to me, to my right, was Hit. H-I-T? Yeah. Hitman. (laughs) Yeah. And that will come back again later. And, you know, there's RB and there's all sorts of different people. And they were the ones standing around me. But Mine, because the psychological evaluation came back that I was a rebel, was Dean. So I took on the persona of Jimmy Dean. James Dean. Rebel without a cause. (laughs) That's right. And so I, my full name undercover was James Dean Galenti. That's
1: fantastic. And
0: so I had a big leather motorcycle jacket that had my friend painted a picture of James Dean on and... It became sort of my persona undercover.
1: Listeners, I'll do my very best to get a photograph of that jacket and post it, uh-huh. if it still exists. It
0: does still exist, but I gave it to my nephew.
1: So, Jim, so you're, in order to investigate the case, you have to document things. So you're sneaking in your, um, your wire, you're sneaking that in past the metal detectors. You're writing things, your fingernail upside down and backwards on your carbon paper sheets. What happens? What what do you document?
0: So, even before I became a broker, my boss, who yelled and screamed and cursed a lot, told us, undercover agents, there were two of us that were working for this company, and there's we helped get other people into other companies. We vouched for them. So, right from the start, my boss took us aside and explained to us how things are done. We help our friends. So he explained to me an unwritten, maybe unspoken conspiracy that if your friend gets into trouble where he loses money, you rip off your client to help him. And then when you're in trouble, he'll help you.
1: Um, You know, as a trained prosecutor, Jim, I have to say, that sounds like a crime.
0: It is. It's a conspiracy and it is a crime and it turns out that our information about this being pervasive was absolutely true. In fact, even before we became brokers, we found that repeatedly we got asked to facilitate criminal activity almost from day one.
1: Well, so I find that so interesting as a prosecutor because at some point the investigation, you know, will end. And so From the very beginning, you see criminal activity. You're in for three years working this case, documenting, presumably, lots of criminal activity. At some point, somebody has to pull the trigger and say, all right, it's time to actually indict people.
0: Right. But, you know, that's going to be way down the road. So don't worry about that yet. We're still in the first days here.
1: Well, Jim, this is a really interesting case. I can see that there's a lot of details and it's amazing so far. I can't wait to hear more about your undercover experiences on the Mercantile Exchange.
0: Well, thank you. So for now, that's it for this episode of Best Case, Worst Case. Thanks for listening. Best Case, Worst Case is an XG production. Produced by Jim Clemente at Empire Studios LA. Engineered and edited by Mike Thal. Music. Composed and performed by Simba Sumba, and hosted by Wonder.
1: You can listen to Best Case, Worst Case on your favorite listening app. We are on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you listen to podcasts.
0: Knowledge is power, and when we know the facts about sexual abuse, we can better protect kids. Darkness to Light has already trained more than 1.4 million adults to keep children safe from sexual abuse.
1: I'm one of those 1.4 million, Jim. Using their Stewards of Children prevention training, they give you and gave me the facts, tools, and tips I needed to help keep the kids I love safe, and you can do the same with their Stewards of Children prevention training. Get trained today to prevent, recognize, and react responsibly to child abuse in your community.
0: Learn more about Darkness to Light and child sexual abuse prevention at www.d2l.org. That's D, the numeral 2, L, dot org.